there are some unique hardships and some unique aspects of suffering that an adoptive family will walk through. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Dr. Ken Geithley. And I'm Nathaniel Williams, filling in for Dr. Quinn today for this segment. Today in our Christ and Culture conversation, Brittany Salmon will join us to discuss her family's adoption journey. You'll enjoy that conversation. After that, Jeremy Bell will deliver a guest segment on Veterans Day. But first, let's begin with our segment called In the News. Some states and local governments held local elections on November 2nd, just this week. Now, Dr. Keithley, some of us are tempted to view these local elections, such as we held this week, as being less significant than the big national elections. For example, the elections we had last year, though maybe even the midterm elections we'll have next year. As Christians, though, why should we care about elections in general, and even especially local elections like we have this week? I think the argument can be made that not only are the state and local elections as important as national elections, that perhaps they're even more important. That's because of the nature of our government. We have a federal government versus a central government. Talk to people from other countries, even other countries that have democracies. By and large, they have a central government, uh, which means, uh, just like the name uh, indicates, that the power is centralized in the national government, and then it's distributed and filtered down to the local level. That's not the way a federal system like ours works. There is a clear division of powers, not just among the different branches of the federal government, but between the federal government and the state and local governments. And so there's a great deal of things that happens uh, at the local level that impacts my life and your life. Do you care about taxes? Well, then you ought to care about local and state elections because for many states, at least half the taxes you pay are are state and local taxes. Do you care about what's going on at our schools? Uh, School boards are local elections. Um, Do you care about certain uh, significant social issues? These things are almost always determined at the local level. And every once in a while, when uh, the federal government steps in in a way that perhaps they should not have, as I think they should not have done on the issue of abortion and on same-sex marriage, still uh, it is the laws that are passed at the local level that end up going up to the federal court system, as we see with the abortion laws in Texas and Mississippi, are happening just this week. Even congressional elections, which are for the federal House of Representatives, the districts are determined on the state level. And so our state and local elections matter, and they matter a great deal. Could we even say then that we often think that votes for national elections are more significant, but really 
our votes in these local elections carry greater significance because of the impact on our everyday lives. Oh, very much so. And as I said, uh, not only uh, you have the mundane things about water supply and zoning ordinances and things that are just day-to-day, which really do impact a person on a day-to-day level, but the great social and cultural issues of our day These are determined at a local level. This is a gift of our Constitution that each and every one of us can have a significant role right in our own neighborhoods. When we think of November, we often think of falling leaves, football, pumpkin pies. In fact, Dr. Keith Lee, even this morning, I had uh, pumpkin chocolate chip breakfast bars that were delightful and just ideal for November and the fall season and families that gather around roasted turkeys. But maybe we should also think about something like adoption. I'm still struggling with the idea of that pumpkin uh, bar that you just ate. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I am, I'm a traditionalist when it comes to pumpkin, and that is pumpkin should be in a pie with whipped cream on it. And and that is my definition of good pumpkin. Besides that, though, um, November is something else, too. November is Adoption Awareness Month. And to help us discuss this important topic, we're delighted to have Brittany Salmon with us. Brittany is a professor, writer, and Bible teacher who's pursuing her doctorate from Southeastern Seminary. She lives in Abilene, Texas with her husband and four children, and she has an upcoming book on adoption. It's entitled, It Takes More Than Love, A Christian Guide to Navigating the Complexities of Cross-Cultural Adoption. Brittany, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Brittany, it's exciting to have this conversation as one that's especially close to my own heart and close to my everyday life and family as it relates to adoption. But let's just start with, give us a little insight into your family. Sure. So my husband, Ben, and I, we actually met on Southeastern's campus in um, Dr. Finn's church history class, or Baptist history, I should say. Um, It was a really exciting time. I I always teased Dr. Finn. I said, thank you very much for not calling me out when I was flirting with a boy beside me, you know, the whole time. But it worked out well. So we met at Southeastern, and um, we've been married for 11 years. We have four children, two of which are biological. They're twin nine-year-old girls. And then we've adopted our last two, Jude, who is five. He's adopted and he's a black American. And then Zeke, who's 18 months, um, he's adopted and he is Hispanic and Native American. Um, And we're actually in the process of adopting baby number five. We're in the waiting season for that. So we're home study ready and just waiting for the phone call for whenever baby number five comes. So what is that like on an everyday basis, having that many kids and of those ages and of different races and backgrounds and all the rest of it, just on a ordinary, everyday, on the playground level, what does that look like? Well, you know, it's just very calm and peaceful and quiet in our world. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. Um, it's utter chaos, pretty much always, but it's, it's loud, it's fun, it's, you know, it's one of those things where it's our normal. We don't think anything about it, typically until we go outside of the confines of our home. Um, and when I say we don't think anything about it, I don't hear me say I'm neglecting to address issues of race in our home. But it's just become normal to be a cross-cultural family, to celebrate different ethnicities, to celebrate um, the different identities that the Lord has given us. It's become normal to us. And we, we've learned how to navigate that outside of our home, on the playground or at school, 
by, you know, clearly saying, hey, son, come over here, come to mommy, or hey, guys, be nice to your sisters, um, or hey, girls, be gentle with your brothers. You know, we have learned to use family language probably more strongly than an average family just to make it very clear when we're out in public, but it's just become our normal and we love it. So in your, in your upcoming book, you talk about love is required to pursue adoption and that's not going to surprise anyone. It takes love to pursue adoption, but do you also, you take that a step further with a little bit of an edge to it, that it takes more than love as well. What do you mean by that? Absolutely. Well, um, it takes more than love. I want to be clear. It love makes a family and we believe that firmly, but I want to say that some of times, sometimes the phrase love makes a family or love is enough has been used as an excuse to maybe not deal with some of the other hardships, whether it's trauma or race or um, some racial identity issues as well. We're like, well, love's enough. You know, if you love a kid, you give them enough love, they're going to be fine. So love is our foundation. And it's the thing that allows us to endure and navigate some of these topics but love is not enough. It takes more than love. It takes a trauma-informed counselor. It takes um, education on race and ethnicity. It takes a, a lot, a lot of apologizing, repenting, growing, saying, hey, this didn't work for us. Let's pivot and go another way. And if we just use love as a band-aid to say, well, I love my kids. They're going to be fine. We're going to actually, if we've listened to transracial adoptees who are now adults, we're going to grow, they're going to grow up and learn and say, okay, well, there's actually, there's more to it than that. And we need to listen to some of the adoptees who are now adults saying, hey, yes, it takes love. However, this also would have been helpful in my journey in figuring out what it looks like to be an Asian American or what it looks like to be um, a Hispanic American. I needed a little bit more coaching in that. And I didn't know how to navigate that in my home. So if we just use love as an excuse to not deal with some of these issues, um, I think we're doing our children more harm, um, unintentional harm, good intention harm, but still harm nonetheless. That was a very helpful uh, answer. And during your answer, you use the expression transracial. Yes. So what is transracial adoption and what different kinds of adoption are there? I'm going to start off on a, a bigger level and then I'll get down to transracial. There are multiple types of adoptions and adoption journeys. So we have domestic adoptions, which means you adopt within the United States. Um, There are international adoptions, which means you adopt outside of the United States. For our context, we're Americans. Then you also have foster to adopt, which means if you adopt a child out of foster care, it's still a domestic adoption. However, it's different than an infant adoption. And so there's many different ways you can adopt. And, And that journey does impact your education and training that you need to have in order to meet the needs of your specific child. Within those different contexts, there is um, same race adoption, which would be a, let's use, let's say a black family adopting a black child or a white family adopting a white child or Hispanic family adopting a Hispanic child. That's a same race adoption. There's transracial adoption, which would be like in our case, my husband and I are both white and we have adopted a black child. And that's very obviously a transracial adoption. Um, Zeke, who is our fourth child, he's actually um, Hispanic and Native American, but he has lighter skin as well. And so he would identify as a transcultural adoption because it looks like we're the same race. We have similar skin tones, but he's actually of a different ethnicity than us. And so that's what we call a transcultural adoption. Um, or let's say if a, um, an American family adopts a Romanian child, a white American family adopts a white Romanian child, That is a transcultural adoption or an international adoption. Um, Those are kind of interchangeable, but international um, doesn't 
it, it can be transracial or transcultural. Does that kind of help clarify a little bit? Does very lots of, much. Lots of big terms. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's that's very helpful. And that's exactly kind of information we were looking for. When we hear the stories of parents who adopt, like your story and others, those of us who have not adopted or are, are, have not had a lot to do with adoption, it's very impressive. Uh, in fact, it almost sounds heroic to us. And so sometimes you see adoptive parents described in heroic terms, and sometimes there is this rosy picture painted. How accurate or inaccurate is that description? I want to clearly say it's very inaccurate. Um, it's very inaccurate. And so there's, a, there's an idea, it's called, we call it saviorism in adoption. And saviorism is the concept uh, that an adoptive, the adoptive parent or parents are coming in to save this poor orphan child who without the parents, they would have this horrible life. Um, and it puts us actually as a center in like a godlike figurehead. And, that, and that, that's not healthy. Um, it's not healthy for a number of reasons, but um, when adoptive families, or my family, for example, we'll just make it personal. When we chose to adopt children and that's how we decided to grow our family, our goal was not to become a savior in the narrative, our goal was to open up our home to a child who needs a family. That's just the way we have chosen to grow our family. And we actually feel like the lucky ones. And if I'm honest from a personal standpoint, if anyone's going to take a savior place in our individual family's narrative, if anyone is, if any human is going to, it wouldn't be us. It'd be the, our kids' birth parents. They made a great choice knowing their situation. Adoption, it's born from trauma. It's a broken scenario. And when a person says, I'm choosing life for my child, but I know I don't have the capacity right now to care for them and give them their needs that, that need to be met for, you know, basically food, housing, emotional support, any of those things. And a human says, but I still want to choose life for my child. If anyone's going to be the hero in the scenario, it's not going to be us. It's going to be the birth family. And we also know adoption sometimes comes from other broken scenarios like foster care where that might not apply. But the truth is, Nobody's the hero in the adoption narrative. Um, that's just not what we're working towards. As Christ followers, all of us are trying to bring about order out of chaos and mirror the gospel and that in our different spheres and scenarios in our lives. But none of us go about calling ourselves saviors when we do that in other areas. We don't do that whenever we're doing it in our ordinary jobs. So we shouldn't do that when we're building our families as well. Brittany, I love you keep using this word chaos. My, my wife, so we have four kids as well. And my wife rides around with a sticker on the back of her car that says chaos coordinator. So I think yes. there's a lot of solidarity here. We know how you feel. Yes. I want to come back to one thing that you mentioned. You, you brought up foster, uh, the foster situation, foster to adopt kind of stuff a couple of times. And just in my own family, my wife and I have adopted one, which was a foster to adopt situation. But then growing up um, as a young child, my parents over time adopted two and we fostered others. And first of all, just to reinforce your point that 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 can be some of the most difficult things that one does in family. I think my parents would probably say that's still uh, probably the most ongoing struggles that they have in their own marriage and in our family directly relate to the adoptions that they chose to move forward with. And yet they would say it was still the right decision, but it's not easy. And I appreciate you just being really honest about that. I want to ask you about the foster situation though, because um, a lot of times I hear a lot of language about adoption and I'm, I'm obviously pro adoption. I think it's really important for us to care for orphans and widows um, and to make much of the need for those who have no home. But one category that I feel like falls through the cracks 
are foster children. Can you speak to uh, what a foster to adopt option might look like and, and perhaps even to the needs of foster kids and how church members and people may be involved with that? Yeah, I'm going to probably give an untraditional response here. So I want to preface that. I think part of the reason why that happens is the foster care, it's something, it's kind of something on an island out on its own. And yes, there is foster to adopt, but primarily it's a government institution. Um, it's you know run by your state and local cities, but primarily the goal of foster care is reunification. Mm-hmm. And so I want to kind of push a little bit and say, um, I'm not saying foster to adopt is not needed. It is very much so needed. And we need families who feel passionately about reunification and also the possibility of um, adopting a child and, and offering them a permanent family situation. But what I'm kind of asking the questions now right now is what does a gospel perspective look like, a kingdom-minded perspective look like if we not only focus on the foster to adopt, but if we also put a lot of energy in, what does it look like in supporting and preventing these scenarios. So not just addressing some of these other issues, the symptoms of these issues, but getting at the root of the problem. What it would look like to support single parents? Who is the average clientele for the foster system in our local communities? And that's going to differ depending on what city you're in and what state you're in. What are those needs? How can we come alongside families and support them and get preventative measures in place um, before a child is ready to be adopted? How can we be just kingdom-minded and use a holy imagination and putting it towards family reunification and preventing family separation. How I would love to see the church get just as passionate about family reunification as we have been about adoption. And I think that foster dynamic, because it holds it holds both of those things pretty, you know, equally in their hands. I think we have to kind of um, have a little more both and approach, a little more nuance. Um, in the way we address that. So it's not just welcoming children into our home, but how do we we welcome single parents, maybe with some addiction issues or some other issues into our communities of faith and support them and come alongside of them and have a redemptive mindset towards not just the child getting a better life, but a family getting an entirely better life. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I think you're right. We've, we've talked a lot about adoption as we should and conti- should continue. Yes. But this whole category of foster and also how to help with reunification and set up, have a holy imagination and even set up structures and ministries towards that. That's probably a whole nother podcast that maybe we can do before too long. Let me ask you this about uh, vocabulary that we use towards adoptive children and families. So you, you mentioned earlier, even the way that you talk to your kids, you have to be really careful about that. And and the way that that either help in the helpful ways or unhelpful ways helps them to understand themselves better and their role in the family better. What are some helpful and unhelpful phrases or terms or, or sets of vocabulary that you have found amidst your family? So language is always changing and evolving. And so I think for adoptive families, what's really important for me is to keep a pulse on what language is shifting and changing. And by listening to adult adoptees, also birth families and seeing what's helpful for them. Because really a lot of a lot of people come and ask us, what's helpful for you? And and I can give that answer. Honestly, I feel like I'm the one who's benefited most out of this situation. I've gained a child. It's great. So, um, but there are people who've lost other things. And so I want to be sensitive to those needs. So one of the phrases that we regularly, and I, I think um, a lot of organizations are really pushing this is for people who have not adopted, not saying given up or like for when it comes to a birth birth family, they, they gave up their child or they, you know, any of that, it's placed. If you're doing an infant, a domestic infant adoption, for instance, our children were not given up. Our children were literally handed from one family to another. She, 
our kids' birth moms placed them into our family. Um, and we have open adoptions. And so we our, our family grew not just by the child, but we actually have, you know, birth families that we are now connected to forever. Um, and so we we don't like the terms given up. I, I also were very sensitive to um, adoption jokes. And so if you're like, if your child's misbehaving, it's very often someone's like, well, if you don't behave, I'm going to give you up for adoption. We hear that. We'll hear that on play dates or hanging out at the park or at a church function. And and I even hear it in the movies. You'll hear, we were watching a movie the other night with our kids and that was said and I was like, oh, um, so there's, there's some language like that that we want to be sensitive to because it's never a joke. Um, when it comes to how we, people, I want to ask, people ask questions who are in our friends and extended family. I love, I love when people have genuine questions about our family, but I would just say, ask the family that you're talking to, Hey, how would you like for me to refer to your son's biological family? Do you refer to it by biological family? Do you refer to it by birth family, first family? There are all sorts of different languages and depending on your type of adoption, you might choose a different route, you know? We have open, healthy adoptions with our kids' first families. So we're very comfortable talking about them. In a foster care situation where perhaps abuse and trauma is in their history, they might have different language that they like to use. They might not have a warm term for their first family that they like to use. And so I'd say if the adoptee is old enough, ask them first. Um, if they're old enough, you know, if they're an adult, if it's an adult that you're talking to or a, a teenager, ask them, say, hey, how, how is that? Now, don't ask my five-year-old because he's going to be like, huh? But, um, you know, ask the parents, how would you like for us to refer to their first family if we have questions about this? Um, real mom and dad. You mentioned that your adoptions are open adoptions. Yes. And so you have an extended family, which leads mm-hmm. us to how you've made a point to celebrate your children's history and heritage. What does that look like and why is it so important? I could talk your ear off on those. This is actually um, something I'm really passionate about. Racial representation and ethnic representation in your home and family. If you're adopting transracially, which again is different race, or transculturally, so different culture, um, is incredibly important to incorporate pieces of your children's culture into your own family. So um, part of that is research has been shown now that a lot of Transracial adoptees are actually, whenever there was a research done a couple of years ago, um, they're very content in, in a lot of different areas. But the one thing that they're lacking in is a healthy racial identity, which means some of them might grow up with self-hate or hate for their race or ethnicity um, if they've grown up in a colorblind or monocultural community. And so based on that, um, and based on the experience of adult transracial and transcultural adoptees who have shared their stories with us, um, we're now learning racial identity is actually incredibly important. And we we actually, even in monocultural families, like I'm I'm actually a Hungarian American. Um, my I'm one fourth Hungarian, but there are pieces to my culture and ethnicity that my family has naturally se- celebrated. We we're not aware that we're celebrating some of these cultural things. It just happens. You know, we have certain foods that we eat in our family. There are certain things we do at the holidays that we've just done, and I never really evaluated it until we became a transracial family. Um, and so what we've done over the years is to say, all right, so when we first adopted our first son, he's a Black American, I set up my Christmas decor for the holidays and realized, wait, this is all 
white people Christmas. I've got a white nativity. I've got white ornaments. I've got white people on my thing. And I was like, wait a second. You were dreaming of a white Christmas. (laughs) Yes, yes. So I I was like, all right, this has got to change. And so quickly I was like, all right, we got to get historically accurate nativity sets. Um, I want to make sure my ornaments are, you know, representative of everyone in our family. Um, and then it, it kind of started that way and just bridged into other areas of our life. Are the toys in our house? Do they represent all of our family members? What about the books? What about the movies we watch? The the voices we listen to? So not just for our kids' sake, but also my husband and I. So my question is like, what podcasts are you listening to as adoptive parents? What pastors are you listening to? Um, what type of Christian books and Christian authors are you listening to? Do they all look like you? or do they mirror the ethnicity of your children as well? And so our goal has been to become truly a cross-cultural family, not just a a monocultural family that sometimes celebrates different ethnicities, but to really incorporate a variety of voices and a variety of family traditions into our family. So that our kids are gonna grow up going kind of like I did, oh, I'm Hungarian American, but I didn't recognize that we ate this dish because it's Hungarian. It's just going to be a part of who they are. And so they can say, hey, no, this is part of Black culture. This is a part of Native American culture. And they can have touch points back in their lives and people who look like them in their homes. And it's not going to be such a foreign thing that there's a some sort of like shell shock when they're an adult in their 20s going, wait a second, I'm Native American. What do I do with that? Yeah. Um, and yeah. so it's it's just more of a, a, a knowing it, doing it from the beginning rather than introducing it when they're an adult. That is super helpful. What would you say to someone who's interested in pursuing adoption? First off, spend a lot of time in prayer. I know that that is like a generic Christian answer, um, but it's really important. The power of prayer and spending time in God's word and, and making sure that you're both on the same page and that your family is in a good place to handle the many nuances of adoption. Um, I think you asked before, like, is it all rose colored? And it's uh, adoption, if anything, has taught me to handle the both and aspects of life of sorrow and grief and joy and pain and togetherness while also family separation. There's there's all these different nuances. And so um, I would encourage a person to pray, prepare their hearts, and then do a lot of education. Read a ton of books on adoption, listen to podcasts, and, and read books on adoption, not just by adoptive parents like me. Read them books from adult adoptees, birth parents, um, I would say have a holistic adoption education uh, that's not just with, we, we, have, we have this thing called an adoption triad, which is basically a triangle that represents the three different people in, that are represented in adoption agreement. So like a birth family, an adopted child, and then an adoptive family. So make sure you're getting all members of the adoption triad opinions and voices and a part of your education. Recently, I was talking to a friend who's also a fellow pastor. Um, he and his wife have two biological children, but they also adopted um, a girl from Ethiopia. So it's not only transracial, it's, it's transcultural. It's kind of uh-huh. trans everything in that sense. And he told me a story about just in the last 12 months. So now this, this little girl is around nine years old. Uh-huh. And just in the last 12 months, she was on a playground where there were a lot of other, uh, a lot of, a lot of other kids, but especially white boys. And he, he told me the story where she went to get on the slide and a, a, white, a white kid jumped in front of her and said to her, white's first, that's the way it's always been, that's the way it always will be. Mm-hmm. 
And she had to respond to that in the moment. And one of her brothers was there, of course, to stand up for her and have a conversation. But what my friend was telling me was, it's not merely the racial issues, the American racial issues that he's having to deal with at that time. It's the fact that she's not, not even officially born American. She's born Ethiopian, but dealing with American racial issues. And he said, these are dynamics in our family that I've never had to think through, don't really even know how to think through. I'm trying to help my daughter understand what it means to look like she does in America, even though she's from Africa. I'm just curious, how do you even begin to sort through those things? Where do you seek help and advice on these things? What would you say to that family? Going back to the building a healthy racial identity, if you're going to do that as an adoptive family, you have to, we're going to have to deal with issues of racism. So all of our children know what racism is, and they've known what racism is from an early age. Early age, our, our, with our white daughters, we started talking about racism with them probably when they were four or five. But even at three, we started building a theological perspective of, of Mago Day, of what that means, of God has made everyone in his image. And you build that foundation and take it a little bit further as they mature. Um, but we have children's books on racism, children's books on identity and things like that, that have to be discussed um, in an adoptive family. If you're adopting transracially in the United States of America um, and, and you're naive to the impact of racism, I, I would say if you're, if you're thinking about adopting, you need to pause and educate yourself and, and get ready because that is something that you have to do. You have to navigate. Our first instance with explicit racism was when Jude was three, our son was three. And, and that was, he was in a playground um, at our family's restaurant. And um, a little girl walked in, he was on the other side and I was sitting in there and one of our employees was actually cleaning the window. And um, the girl just pointed at Jude and started screaming. I mean, she just started screaming at him and he was like smiling and he was confused. And I immediately was like, what's happening? And she ran out to her mom and her mom came out and she came right in and said, what did that boy do to my, my daughter? And I said, he didn't do anything. She just walked in and pointed and started screaming. She said, no, I saw him get aggressive with her. And I was like, ma'am, you weren't in here. Also, he, she called a three-year-old black boy aggressive, which obviously the, you know, there's, there's some triggering language there. Um, and immediately, you know, the employee and I had to step up and, and I sent Jude along with his sisters and had to deal with this woman, but you have to be prepared for those conversations from the time you bring your baby home. Otherwise, um, you're gonna get in a scenario and not know what to do. And so uh, when it comes to adopting transracial in the United States, racism, it's a big deal. Um, the way we cope with it is we are not in a monocultural family or monocultural community, excuse me. We are not in a monocultural community. We have chosen intentionally to put our kids in school districts that um, where they'll be represented um, and sports teams where they'll be represented, not just with, you know, their fellow teammates, but also have coaches that look like them. Um, we have adults in our home. Our kids are not, we don't just have white folks in our home. Our home is consistently, we have Hispanic people in and out of our house. We have African-Americans coming over for dinner. I mean, it, it, and I, I'm saying that we also have white folks, Ameri white Americans in our house too, but our kids are consistently surrounded by people who look like them. Um, who they have access to to say, hey, hopefully when they get older to say, hey, how did you deal with this? And we talk about it. Um, we're talking about it as a community. When something happens in the news, which happens relatively often in our society, we're talking about it as a community. We're talking about it in front of our children and with our kids in age-appropriate ways. 
So it's not such a shocking thing, but we're also giving our children when we do that, when we do that when it's not an emergency situation, just in the regular context of our home, we're also gifting our kids with the tools and the vocabulary, how to name racism when they experience it and how to stand up for themselves. Um, and so we're gifting them with the language and gifting them with the understanding of being able to categorize it. Whereas what has happened in the past is by listening to transracial adoptees who've been in monocultural colorblind families, they experience something. They come home and say, I experienced this. And their parent, their family will be like, oh, well, it's not a big deal. Kids will be kids. They excuse it. And they don't have the language to deal with racism. They don't even know that it's racism until they're an adult and they're looking back going, wait, that was racist. This happened because of this. And I don't know how to cope as an adult, as a black American in the United States in 2020. How do I, like, and they're going to therapy and getting that language and really processing and, and you know, taking some of those layers back. So, I, I mean, that's how we deal with it. I'm not saying we do it perfectly. We absolutely don't. We make mistakes all the time, but living a, a cross-cultural life um, and, and kind of putting aside a monocultural life and saying, we're, no, we're going to intentionally choose where our kids go to school. We're going to choose where we go to church. We're going to choose what sports teams we put our kids into and forsaking some of the cultural norm of, well, our kids don't go to private school and they don't go to the, the white suburb school that is really, really loved in our area. We intentionally live in a different area in our city so our kids can go to school with people and teachers who look like them. Um, and making some of those steps so your, your actual community is cross-cultural and it does reflect the ethnicity of your children um, is huge. It, I think that that goes, it doesn't, it doesn't fix the problem, but it does help put a board in your bridge to developing a healthy racial identity. So you mentioned, uh, you've talked about the role of community. How can churches serve families who pursue adoption? One thing that churches do really well, we're really great at coming alongside a family in the adoption process. So the beginning, when the person, when the family applies to adopt and they're fundraising or they're preparing and doing all that, the church has been awesome in getting us to that point. I think the aftermath, um, we could grow in walking with the family. Like for example, we deal with issues of adoption and navigating those um, and, we've, we've, and we will for the rest of our lives. And so having a church that is educated on adoption issues, or at least a pastor or, or staff member who's taking the time to read some books on adoption, who, who can be sensitive to trauma. Some of these kids have experienced immense trauma, having Sunday school classes and kids programs, leaders who are, who are trauma-informed, I think would make it a huge blessing. But then just also care teams to say, our, our, the church we currently attend, um, they actually have adoption care teams that walk with families, not just before an adoption, but in months and seasons afterwards, and they can always tap in later. And so let's say like our family is doing great right now, but we're having some issues later on. We can say, hey, can we have a care team? Um, we're walking through some, some heartache and we're, we're putting together some of these pieces with our teenage kids and we're really struggling. Can, can we be cared for in this season and it be normal and not so feel like, oh, well, I mean, kids are kids, raising kids is hard recognizing that there are some unique hardships and some unique aspects of suffering that an adoptive family will walk through. Um, and, and then just embracing that and supporting them in whatever ways they need. I think that would be helpful. And I also think just kind of what you mentioned beforehand, um, not glorifying or over-beautifying adoption. There is such a adoption is beautiful narrative that I think has, is a little harmful 
not just to adoptees and first families, but also to adoptive families. And so when you get a naive young couple who's like, adoption's beautiful, I want to do this. And then you throw them into this mix. And there's, again, a lot, I mean, it's, we love our family. I love adoption. I, I mean, it's, do not hear me say otherwise. I think it's one of, it's one of the things we would do it again in a heartbeat. We're doing it again currently. We love the way God has brought our family together. I'm passionate about it. It is hard and it is heartbreaking. And when you're doing it holistically and caring for first families, if you're doing a domestic infant adoption, or even if you did an international adoption and you're trying to navigate the loss of a first culture and language and all these things, that's, that's hard work and heartbreaking. So having people, a community of believers who acknowledge that pain and walk with you in it, that's priceless. This has been super helpful. We've been talking to Brittany Salmon talking to her about her new book, It Takes More Than Love, A Christian Guide to Navigating the Complexity of Cross-Cultural Adoption. Brittany, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. Southeastern Seminary's mission is to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Almost all of Southeastern's degrees are available fully online, so whether you're in your living room or the classroom, you can receive high-quality theological education. Get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. As we wrap up today's episode, Jeremy Bell joins us to share a few words on how we can honor veterans on Veterans Day. November 11th marks Veterans Day. Now, to be clear, Veterans Day is not the same as Memorial Day. Memorial Day takes place the last Monday in May. And Memorial Day is reserved for commemorating those who gave the ultimate sacrifice to protect and defend our country. Veterans Day, on the other hand, exists for the American people to say thank you, to say thank you to those who were honorably discharged from the military and still walking around amongst us today. It is a day that we get to celebrate these American men and women who swore an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I believe that Veterans Day should be recognized by all Americans, including faithful followers of Jesus Christ. After all, these men and women support and defend our First Amendment right to freely exercise our faith. This is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to honor the men and women who have served in the armed forces. As a former Marine officer, here are three ways that you can honor veterans this Veterans Day on November 11th. First, literally say thank you. Now, on Veterans Day, you're going to see many veterans out there wearing their some type of military clothing or hat, uh, and they do that intentionally to show the particular branch or service that they served in. And it may not seem like much, but to just go up to them and say thank you means a lot. So here's my recommendation. Walk up to them, look them in the eye, give them a firm handshake, and sincerely from the bottom of your heart, say thank you. It's one small, simple, brief gesture that means everything to those who are serving or have served in the United States military. Uh, And on a note of that, I would just also encourage you to say a special thank you to those who served in the Vietnam War. These veterans, I don't think, received the same applause and appreciation 
that many of the other veterans received, like myself, when we came home from our combat deployments. So Vietnam veterans didn't hear thank you enough, but we can change that by starting today on this Veterans Day. Number two, recognize their families. On Veterans Day, we give thanks to the men and women who put on the uniforms and laced up those combat boots. Yet many veterans will tell you that families are the backbone of the military. Families put in countless hours and endure all range of emotions while their loved ones serve the United States of America. Recognize the sacrifices that these military families made. Show your appreciation to them by also looking at them and saying thank you for your service as well. That type of gratitude to the families will penetrate the hearts of the husbands, the wives, the children, the mothers and fathers who had to make extreme sacrifices as their loved ones served in the military. Number three, give them a token of your appreciation. The military loves tokens. Military officers, high-ranking enlisted officers, they give out tokens to those service members who showed or performed at an exemplary level. And this means worlds to the young military men and women out there. And so you can also do the same thing. Consider items that you might give to a veteran on this Veterans Day when you see them. For example, perhaps you could give them a small gift or a gift card to a coffee shop, a card that says thank you for your service to show your appreciation to them. Listen, it doesn't have to be expensive, but give them a token of your gratitude from your heart, and this means the world to them. Listen, these are three easy ways you can show your appreciation this Veterans Day. Of course, there are many other ways, so be creative. But many veterans would want you to know that they serve their country not to receive acknowledgement, they served their country because they believed in their duty to defend and protect the United States of America. They believed in this country, and many served knowing that they could pay the ultimate sacrifice in their service. With this in mind, take a moment to say and show them you are thankful for their service and sacrifice. So, as a veteran, to all my fellow veterans out there, and including all the active duty military and the reservists out there and their military families, I'd like to say to you, thank you. Thank you for your service to the American people and the United States of America. And thank you, Jeremy, for that good reminder and a heartfelt thanks for your service. Jeremy Bell serves as Director of Certificate Services at Southeastern. He is a graduate of Southeastern Seminary and is a Ph.D. candidate in theological studies with an emphasis in Christian ethics. You can find more of Jeremy's thoughts over at BeImitators.com. Thank you again, Jeremy, for sharing that with us. And thank all of you for listening today. If you enjoyed today's episode, do us a huge favor. Go rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or share the episode with a friend. We'll see you next time.